Philitropus FM. I'm Alex Williams. Welcome back to the Creation Stories. In episode one, we introduced the themes we'll be covering in this season. One of those themes is the power of words. You'll remember that in the seven days story, God spoke the world into being. In this episode, we'll be diving deep into this idea of words and power, not only in the literary and religious context presented by the story, but also in the historical context of the development of these myths, and how these words are used as a power to order the chaos of our own lives. As we get into this episode, I invite you to think back to a time where words impacted you personally, where the words of a song, a loved one, a film, or something else ordered some chaos for you. So God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So in ancient times, there was kind of this idea of there were the waters above and there were the waters below. And so heaven literally was like a, a, a roof <laughs> that separated those creative waters. What I love about it is this idea of it kind of reminds me of a womb, those generative waters of life. And so there's deeply feminine, if we want to use that term imagery in here, but this idea of separating the waters from the waters. And again, this is that idea of chaos, creating order out of chaos. And water is both life-giving, but it is also the most destructive force on earth. You have one level of chaos, you create order. Then there's another level of chaos, you create order. So this increasing levels of order. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. You also may be noticing a pattern here that we're doing order to chaos, order to chaos, or chaos to order, chaos to order. But it's moving from more simple to more complex. And so creation has a trajectory. The story of creation has this wonderful trajectory of moving into to greater complexity. I'm hoping to do a bonus episode with Natasha all about feminine imagery in this myth. I think it's a really beautiful interpretation that ties in well with this idea of a Mother Earth. We are going to get into the life-giving nature of Earth in a few episodes. Bringing Cantor Russ back in, let's get back on this trajectory of order out of chaos. So first day, light and darkness, separated. Second day, the chaos of the waters brought into control by the building of the firmament, the creation of the sky, so that you have waters above and waters below. So the whole creation story is about putting things in order. And then that becomes a very big concept within Judaism, that everything has its place and that everything has a purpose within the creation because it's all part of this grand order that God imposed upon the chaos. That is really the major underlying message of that first creation story. You may think things are chaotic. You may think that the world doesn't make sense. You may think that things just happen by complete random happenstance. No. God ordered the chaos. God separated things into their appropriate places so that they could flourish within creation. And as a result, the world is a place that you can know that you can appreciate. And God actually wants us to know and appreciate it 
because if we do that well, then we will be able to have a deep relationship with divinity, however we define it. Waters above, waters below. Now, I don't know about you, but I always thought the firmament was the earth, like dirt. And I remember when I told my mom that I thought this, she was surprised because, yes, when you read the text as an adult, it doesn't make sense that way. But as a kid, I hear the firmament and who knows what a firmament is. And so I just pictured, you know, the ground. Until, of course, last year, a friend mentioned this idea of the waters above and the waters below and how when people say opened the windows of heaven to pour out blessings, it could be a reference to this great dome, this firmament that separates us from the waters above. Now, before we get too deep into some of the history and the anthropology, I want to turn to Islam. In episode one, Imam Saeed introduced us to Imam Ali, whose work can be found in Peak of Eloquence. I've linked a PDF of Peak of Eloquence in the show notes for further exploration. And I have Imam Saeed back to share more. And then in the second phrase, he says, when Almighty created the openings of atmosphere, as I said, everything was one. There was no opening. There was no gap. When Almighty created the openings of atmosphere, expanse of firmament, strata of winds, he flowed into it water, whose waves were stormy and whose surges leapt one over the other. He loaded it on dashing wind and breaking typhoons, ordered them to shed it back as rain, gave the wind control over the vigor of the rain, and acquainted it with its limitations. The wind blew under it while water flowed furiously over it. So this is how God created the universe. Then Almighty created forth wind and made its movement sterile, perpetuated its position, intensified its motion, and spread it far and wide. Then he ordered the wind to raise up deep waters and to intensify the waves of the oceans. So the wind churned it like the churning of curd and pushed it fiercely into the firmament, throwing its front position on the rear and the stationary on the flowing till its level was raised and the surface was full of foam. Then Almighty raised the foam onto the open wind and vast firmament and made therefrom the seven skies and made the lower one as a stationary surge and the upper one as protective ceiling and a high edifice without any pole, a high roof without any pole to support it or nail to hold it together. When I sat with Imam Saeed and he shared this with me, I could see this happening in my mind. Again, it says, Then Almighty created forth wind and made its movement sterile, perpetuated its position, intensified its motion, and spread it far and wide. Then he ordered the wind to raise up deep waters and to intensify the waves of the oceans. Of course, when I read this, I picture a powerful, bearded man moving his arms about and commanding nature with his words. The words, plus my personal experiences and biases, develop that image. For you, it might be something else. 
Imam Sayyid expanded on why he believes such imagery is found in sacred texts. Explaining something which is beyond our eyes, which is beyond our experiences and imaginations, it's extremely difficult. If I want to explain something to you that you've never seen, and you cannot even imagine, our imaginations are bound by our experiences, what we see, what we uh, listen to, what we are acquainted with. Without them, we cannot even imagine things. For example, just, just imagine, if there is a baby in the womb of his or her mother, and you want to explain that baby, the world, this world where we are living, would you be able to explain? It will be very difficult. You can say probably uh, the liquid you are uh, flowing in, you can uh, say we have water, we have oceans, and that is similar to the liquid you are flowing. But that is totally different. The darkness of the womb, you can probably explain that uh, there is night like you are having, but definitely won't be able to explain the daytime. Okay? So there will be a lot of limitations if you want to explain uh, the world and the creation of this world and the creatures of this world to a baby who is still in the womb of his or her mother. Because he hasn't seen the world. The same thing applies with us. If we want to understand something that we haven't seen and we cannot see, it's very difficult. For example, if I want to explain to you the paradise, we can say there will be fruits like we have apple, like we have pears, like we have uh, pomegranates and all these blanas, there will be fruits. But this is just to give you an understanding which is uh, similar to, so not exactly the fruits of paradise will be like the fruits of this world. They will be far greater. We cannot imagine their taste and their flavor and their uh, smell. We cannot. But in order to give us a faded understanding, we use these examples. So in the same way, God wanted to explain to us how he has created the world. But we were bound by our language, we were bound by our experiences, we were uh, restricted to our words. If, for example, God wanted to use the words, right words, proper words, exact proper words that we were unfamiliar with, what would be the point? No one would be able to understand. So God used the same words that we have developed throughout our history in order to uh, interact with one another, in order to communicate with one another, explain things and understand things from one another. So God used the same words. But these words, these terms, they are limited to this world because we have developed them. Okay. So if God wants to explain something which is beyond this world, before this world, it's extremely difficult. So God uses these stories and descriptions to illustrate things we might not yet understand. One of the purposes of this podcast is to give people an appreciation for these stories, regardless of their background. Whether you're atheist, an adherent to an Abrahamic tradition, Hindu, Buddhist, or something else, I hope this show helps you develop an appreciation for these myths. At the top of the episode, I invited you to think of words that ordered a personal chaos. It could be a book, a film, the comforting words of a loved one, or even one of your own thoughts. For me, it tends to be music. When I'm sad, I put on some sad music. When I'm in love, I play more love songs. When I'm thinking about a friend, I might play a song they introduced me to. 
it puts into words feelings that I don't fully understand on my own. That's the power of words. What's really cool to me is speech plays an especially important role in this creation story. God speaks, and it is. God says, let there be light, and there was light. In our conversation, Cantor Russ expanded on this in a really beautiful way. How does God order the world through the use of speech? That everything God does in the first creation story, in the first seven days of creation, God does it because God speaks it into being. So speech is an act of will, right? And so God says something and it happens. And of course, in the Jewish tradition, that then reminds us of the absolute importance of speech because speech actually translates into something tangible. So therefore, speech is very precious and must be guarded and must be used for good because we want to mimic and emulate what God did by speaking the world into being. Our words have power. For the rest of the episode, we're going to explore this through the lens of other ancient Near Eastern stories. To join me for this is Dr. Josh. As a recap, Dr. Josh is an Assyriologist who runs a YouTube channel with his wife. Their channel is called Digital Hammurabi, and you should definitely check it out. Let's start with the first question I had for Dr. Josh. What exactly is an Assyriologist? That's the question I've been getting from all my friends when I'm like, oh, I'm interviewing an Assyriologist tomorrow. They're like, what's that? So could you tell us what an Assyriologist is? Yeah, and it's, it's probably the most common question that I get. <laughs> so it's essentially dealing with the languages and cultures of ancient Iraq. So, you know, if you, if you think about the Sumerians or the Akkadians, the Babylonians, you know, all these, these uh, you know, figures of these people groups sort of fall under that category. A lot of people get into Assyriology through the Hebrew Bible, through the Old Testament, because, you know, whether a lot of people want to admit it or not, you know, ancient Israel is part of the ancient Near East, and we have a, such a tremendous amount of information historically, archaeologically, from ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Iraq. And so there are people that, you know, just do that for a living. So that's how I got into it. Uh, I, I went and got a bachelor's degree in religion, and then I got a master's in theology where I focused in on Old Testament studies. And that sort of brought me into Assyriology more broadly uh, with a minor in Hebrew Bible. So... That's how I got where I am. To kick off this conversation of words having power, Dr. Josh is going to tell us two stories from the ancient Near East. There's a story that goes back into the earlier second millennium called the Anzu myth. And the Anzu myth is it's about this bird, this divine bird called the Anzu bird. And he steals this tablet called the Tablet of Destinies, which is one of the coolest names for a tablet. And the Tablet of Destinies essentially is like the uh, the reality stone, I guess, in um, whatever that... The Avengers. The Avengers, thank you. Where it can control nature, or it can control aspects of reality, whatever. And the senior deity, Enlil, has the Tablet of Destinies, and he goes in and he takes a bath, and the Anzu bird, who's supposed to be guarding Enlil and his stuff, is, actually goes in, 
betrays him and steals the tablet of destinies and flies off into the mountains. And all the gods are thrown into terror. You know, what are we going to do? And so different deities set, you know, to go out and fight the Anzu bird, but then they run back scared. No, we can't do it. And ultimately this god, Ninorta, is convinced to go out and to fight. And when he goes out and fights, he loses. Like there's this actual real struggle and he loses because he goes to shoot an arrow at the Anzu bird. And Anzu bird says, holds up the tablet of destinies and basically says, arrow, go away. And the arrow goes away. And so he controls reality in that, in that way. And so Ninorta gets advice from the god Ea and Ea is like a trickster. He's a, he's a wisdom, you know, he's a very wise deity. And he comes up with this plan to trick the Anzu bird. So Ninorta goes to fight him. And when, he, when the Anzu bird gets really tired, he lowers his wings. And when he does, Ninorta cuts this, these, these long feathers off. The Anzu bird holds up the Tablet of Destinies and says, feathers return to me to, to draw his feathers back to him that he had had cut off. And when he does that, Ninorta shoots an arrow and the fletching on the arrow is made of feathers. And so when he says, feathers come to me, it brings the arrow as well and it kills him. Okay, quick recap. Tablet gets stolen. The gods are scared to fight. Ninorta is convinced to fight, but he loses. Then Ea, a trickster god, comes up with a clever plan. And now Ninorta wins. Okay, that story is picked up and completely reworked by the Enuma Elish. And I won't go into all the details of it, but the process is the same. You have authority being wrested away, and now there's this, uh, this deity called Tiamat who's threatening all the gods, and she has uh, like a cohort named Kingu, and Kingu has the Tablet of Destinies. And different gods go to like fight against, but run away terrified. Well, the god Marduk isn't convinced to go fight. He volunteers, which shows him to be even more brave than Ninorta, right? And when he goes out and fights, his approach, just by him approaching, Kingu, the guy that holds the tab on the destinies, is defeated. There's no physical battle. Just his approach is so powerful that he just defeats the guy with the Tablet of Destinies without even lifting a finger. This text is being reworked. They are very intentionally utilizing aspects of the Anzu myth. And there are articles about this that people can go read about the specifics. But it's, it's very clearly reworking this earlier story for its own ends to say Marduk is the new Ninorta but he's so much more powerful. He's so much more, you know, brave and mighty and whatever. Again, it's not that it's borrowing the text wholesale because there are significant differences between them, but it's utilizing it in a very sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle way and reworking it for theological purposes and theological emphases. We have some great modern examples of this sort of thing. This isn't a direct analog, but it might give you a bit of an idea for how we remix things. Consider the scene in Sam Raimi's second Spider-Man film, where Tobey Maguire, as Spider-Man, is saving a train full of people. He has his arms outstretched, he's bleeding, he's struggling to keep it all together, and 
At the end of the tracks, when the train is stopped and the people are saved, he slumps from exhaustion. He's pulled in by the people he saved, and each person touches his body in gratitude. It's telegraphing to the audience that Spider-Man is the savior of these commuters. It does this using imagery borrowed from the New Testament and other Christian traditions. But what if you don't have the cultural context to read that in the film? Well, I mean, it's still a pretty good story, but without the context, it loses some of its depth. That's why I think providing context to these myths is so important. We remix stories, we borrow imagery, and we change details about stories all the time. And a good example of this, so uh, we don't know exactly how this came about. There's some theories about it, but in the, in the first millennium, during the what's called the Neo-Assyrian period, the Assyrians in the north are in control of the region, including Babylonia to the south. Babylonia is where this story, the Enuma Elish, comes from, right? It's where they, it was developed. And at some point during the Neo-Assyrian period, we start to see a Neo-Assyrian version of the Enuma Elish. What's interesting about it, and that's not uncommon, right, to see another version from a different area. What's interesting about it, <laughs> their god in the north in Assyria was called Asher, and the one in the south is called Marduk. The story of the Enuma Elish is about Marduk and his ascendancy. But in the Assyrian versions that we have, Marduk's name is replaced with Asher. And the story essentially stays the same. Like these people aren't dumb. Like they, they know this story has been about Marduk all this time. And just because they put Asher in it, what do they think that, you know, suddenly it's about him? That's not the point. The point is there's now power. That's a powerful thing that happens when you just change the name. Now the story is about Asher, right? In other words, that putting it in that form and that written form in some sense imbues, it, it changes reality, right? In a sense, and imbues this uh, this story of power. So that's it's an important thing to recognize that they they're not thinking exactly like we think, and that there's power in the written word. There's power in names. There's power in you know making these types of changes. And that's something else, just very quickly, that I think it's important to mention because the listener might be hearing this and saying, "Well, th th aren't they smart enough to know that just because you put it in a text doesn't make it true?" And if this is an important thing to recognize. They're not thinking like we are. Putting something in a text, particularly a text like this, in and of itself imbues the the, the text with power and the thing that the text is writing about with power. They're not thinking like we are. This is probably the most important thing I've ever learned. These were people living in their own time. They had their own habits, their own social norms, and their own reasons for telling these stories. L.P. Hartley famously wrote, The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Similarly, people you know do things differently. Approach them charitably. Consider the context with which they are coming. They may be using a different story than you to order their chaos. For you, it might be this creation story. For them, it might be Sherlock Holmes or Spider-Man or their favorite song. And now, a last word from Cantor Russ. The idea that words have power in Judaism 
what we take from the creation story with the idea of words having power is the idea that you cannot use speech lightly. Nowadays, so many people just talk and don't realize the consequences of the words that are coming out of their mouths. Judaism has always said you must be very careful with something that escapes your lips because it can be as devastating as a sword. It can cause great havoc and great damage. And so therefore, words have to be taken very seriously. And the model is the model of creation. God chose every word very carefully when God engaged in the act of creation. Hence, we must choose each and every word carefully that comes out of our mouths, because even though we can't create like God creates, our words can create reality for other people. And therefore, we have to make sure that the reality we're creating for others is, again, a reality that is something that enhances and builds up, but that doesn't destroy and tear down. And our words can do that. And the model is the model of God speaking things into being in creation. Thank you for listening to and supporting this program. Once again, I'll invite you to stick around for the credits. As always, thank you to those of you who support this podcast and the rest of my work on Patreon. If you'd like to become a supporter, it's the very first link in the show notes. As a thank you, you'll get a postcard from me and a bunch of bonus content as well. The Creation Stories is a production of Polytropus FM. I, Alex Williams, wrote, produced, hosted, and edited this podcast. Our guests include Cantor Russell-Jane, Imam Saeed Hassan, the Reverend Natasha Brubaker-Garrison, and Dr. Joshua Bowen. If you'd like to get in touch with any of our guests, see their work, or support them, I've put links to all of them down in the show notes. Specifically, Dr. Josh has recently published The Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament, which I think will broaden your appreciation for these stories regardless of your background. If you're in the Calgary area, I highly recommend you visit calgaryinterfaithcouncil.org to see how you can get involved in the interfaith community here. There will also be updates available there on the upcoming UN World Interfaith Harmony Week. Special thank you to Rob Faulkner, Matt Baker, Dalton Harding, and the Calgary Interfaith Council for connecting me with guests and additional resources. Thank you to Garrett Vandenberg for creating our theme music. He's also done the original music for My Wax Museum and Polytropus so I highly recommend you check out his work. We used some sound effects courtesy of Selker Studio, Craig Carter, and OG sound effects in this episode. And thank you to Bethany Gustafson for our show cover art. A full list of sources and credits can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode.